Good afternoon. It's Friday the 30th of April 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Now, a few people have asked about Patrick Henningsen. Patrick has some personal and uh, business matters to sort out, but uh, we expect him to be back with us in the near future. Where are we starting? Well, I think we should just start with this banner headline from the Mail Online. Lockdown day 403. I think many people forgetting just how long it is since we've had some sort of normal life in this country. Uh, but I want to frame it like this. 403 days of medical martial law, which I think is a particularly appropriate expression. And of course, in principle, that medical martial law has been fully supported by the Daily Mail. We've seen no uh, substantial outspoken articles from the Daily Mail um, on uh, lockdown. Um, little John coming out with a little bit of a piece today, or maybe it was yesterday. But uh, in general, the papers going along with the policy and promoting the fact that we've now got into uh, utterly childish pantomime between the uh, political parties. So wallpaper has now become more important than deaths through vaccines and uh, lockdown. Indeed. Now, uh, sarcasm alert. Uh, really excellent news, Brian, because we've got 60 million more doses of the Pfizer vaccine on their way. Um, so the UK has secured 60 million more doses, according to the government press release. Uh, and uh, this is going to help bolster the uh, COVID-19 vaccination programme, but it's particularly going to support the booster COVID-19 vaccination programme, as we'll come on to in one second. So we haven't finished the trials. The trials are still ongoing because it's a black triangle medication. Uh, the vaccine's an experimental vaccine, but we're going to go for the boosters. That's right. So to protect the most vulnerable ahead of the winter, the government says uh, they are preparing for a booster programme based on clinical need uh, to ensure people have the strongest possible protection against COVID-19. So that should make us all feel very good. Uh, and uh, these additional Pfizer jabs will be used alongside the other approved COVID-19 vaccines for the booster program. Uh, which ones have been approved? Yes, that's what I thought was. I thought that's the correct answer. Thank you, uh, Brian. Uh, th this comes as new data from Public Health England to say shows that one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine reduces household transmission of the virus by up to half. So this is clearly the narrative that's being built. The vaccines have solved the problem. Uh, and uh, of course, we've got the graph, uh, sorry, the, the map here. Uh, which is implying zero COVID. Um, and this is on the uh, the COVID dashboard from the government. So uh, I thought we would uh, zoom in on Plymouth. Let's have a look. Uh, Plymouth there, uh, just to the, on the south coast, of course. Um, and uh, well, let's have a look. People tested positive for Plymouth. Uh, the, this is the latest data of local authority level provided on the 29th of April, 2021, uh, 11, and then 48 over the last seven days. Uh, we've had no deaths in Plymouth in fact, for, I think, 59 days now, I think it is. Um, certainly zero in the last seven days. Uh, and uh, patients admitted to University Hospitals Plymouth, uh, zero. So no COVID here. But of course, as I say, the vaccination and the lockdown very much being presented in the press as the reason for this success. Uh, but actually, if we look at the, uh, the government's uh, data uh, dashboard for the last uh, 12 months or so, um, in fact, we see that the years look pretty similar, don't they? Well, they do. This is the problem for the... Uh, so if we, if we saw this, this, this collapse in numbers in May last year, 
And we're seeing a similar collapse in numbers where we're just about in May this year. Um, but we have vaccination this year, but not last year. And we've seen the same effects. Then what effect did the vaccine have? Um, the effect of the vaccine was caused the government to lie, Mike. Ah, right. OK, thank you. Uh, and let's just reinforce that, of course, because this is the uh, number of excess deaths. Uh, we've shown this graph many times from uh, the Office for National Statistics. Uh, and uh, well, the key point here is if we look uh, at the May bank holiday, uh, which is there uh, on the graph, we can see that from the May bank holiday onwards, uh, we saw significant reductions last year uh, in the number of mortality, the amount of mortality in hospitals and in care homes, but not in people's homes. So the health service absolutely not providing any kind of service to people other than people labelled as COVID uh, patients. And this is reinforced again in the mail today. The doctor won't see you now. Yes, they played a vital role in the pandemic. Which vital role was that? Uh, but with COVID in retreat, many GPs still not opening their doors uh, and patients are in despair. And the key point here is we, this is the new normal. You said the other day uh, when Lisa Nandy, if that's her first name, uh, Ms. Nandy said that this would be the last lockdown. And you said, yes, because we're not coming out of lockdown again. Yeah, That's right. And this is applying to doctor's surgeries. It's applying to just every other uh, measure that has been taken as a result of COVID-19. Um, but look, here is a really key document that was sent to me today. Thank you very much to Ian Davis, uh, who writes for InThisTogether.com and also for us. Uh, this is uh, SPY-MO. Um, this is the modeling section of SAGE. Uh, and this is their consensus statement. And they're saying SPY-MO's best estimates for R in England, Scotland, Wales, uh, sorry, in Northern Ireland are between 0 0.8 and 1. For Wales, it's between 0 .7, 0 0.7 and 0 0.9. Um, so there's no justification for lockdown here. But this isn't the interesting bit. Uh, the interesting bit comes further down the document. It says SPYMO is concerned that as prevalence of infection increases and a large proportion of the adult population is vaccinated, the current definition of death, i.e. death within 28 days of a positive COVID-19 test, will become increasingly inaccurate as a measure of the health burden of the epidemic. It will also potentially distort the estimates of vaccine efficacy. So we're going to translate that in a second. But before we do, we'll just show you this article in the I, which was published today based on their, this report. Uh, I think it was today or uh, three days ago. Uh, current definition of COVID deaths could distort vaccine success data, scientists warned. And the key quote from this is, a senior SAGE source said, if the definition remains the same, these people would be counted as vaccine failures, whereas the vaccine pre prevented death from COVID, but they really died from something else. I suspect that the current definition will have to be revised at some point. So what SAGE is saying here, at least this section of SAGE, is that this definition of death from COVID-19 of being 28 days, within 28 days of a positive COVID test is complete and utter nonsense. It's always been nonsense, but it has suited the government to use that definition because it allowed them to, to maintain certain levels of numbers and maintain a certain level of fear in the population up until, up until now. But at this stage, SAGE is very concerned that that definition no longer suits the narrative because that would mean that people would be counted as vaccine failures uh, if they were uh, attributed, if the, their deaths were attributed to COVID-19. So there is a, an acknowledgement here absolutely implicit acknowledgement that PCR tests are not showing COVID deaths, so they're not worth the paper they're written on, 
And they're, sa they're basically saying that if the government relies on PCR tests, uh, that will show that a mostly vaccinated population, uh, you know, get, getting ill from yeah. COVID or dying from COVID, uh, that vaccines don't work. So they are very, very concerned about that. And it's just staggering to me how the narrative shifts 180 degrees when it suits them. Yeah, if the, if the police are investigating a murder, might, the key thing is the body, isn't it? Is there a body? Has a body been found? Uh, because the body is key to is key to the murder, and um, it seems to me that what we've got here is that the government policy, possibly cock up, but I don't think so. It's calculated, has been producing death throughout the care system, throughout the um, care and residential system of the elderly, throughout the NHS. We know this because we've now got NHS medical staff coming forward. So death rates have increased. It's increased under lockdown, as you've pointed out, because people can't get medical treatment. And now all of a sudden, the government wants to redefine uh, death. To me, this is a crude, a very crude attempt to actually cover up the crimes that have been committed over the last 403 days. Yes, and it's, uh, I think it's Malcolm Rifkin uh, today is absolutely demanding that there's a full... Uh, inquiry into this whole thing. Uh, yep. It's beginning now before people forget, he says. Well, people aren't going to forget, I, I would suggest. But uh, let's not forget that on Wednesday, uh, Matt Hancock was speaking uh, on the live stream. And he said, so we're working on our plans for booster shots too. We've been working on a program for booster shots again for over a year now, have they? If we, that's him and his pharma pharmaceutical buddies, friends, yes. his buddies. Must yeah. be, yeah. Uh, but how have they been doing that? Booster shots for over a year. How have they, how have they been doing that? When did the, when did the vaccination program begin? Actually? Well, don't forget the early trials, Mike, where they were trialing the vaccine on small numbers of people, including children. So uh, it makes sense that uh, they're now bringing this forward. So, so, so but what he's, what he's admitting here is that they have acknowledged they have, they have known of a need for booster shots from the beginning. Yes. So this has been the plan from yep. the beginning. Yes. Uh, and we've backed some of the only clinical trials in the world looking specifically at booster shots, he said. Um, so where does that take us then? Well, um, we've got to bring in the BBC and uh, we'll follow this little trail through. But we're going to jump back to September 2019. And thank you to the individual that uh, pointed this, this one at me. So this was the BBC uh, on its own web page, the Media Centre talking about new collaboration steps up fight against disinformation. A new industry collaboration to tackle dangerous misinformation was announced by the BBC and partners today. Well, we'll just re-headline that. Uh, so we get rid of the new collaboration. We'll call it the new collaboration to step up propaganda because this is clearly what the BBC has been doing. And... Um, where do we want to go now? Let's look at some of the things that were uh, stated in this article. Earlier this summer, the BBC convened a trusted news summit. Do you like that? It's yes. a little bit 1984, a trusted news summit, bringing together senior figures from major global technology firms and publishing. Recent events such as the Indian elections have highlighted the dangers of disinformation and the risks it poses to democracy and have underlined the importance of working together around shared principles. So that's collaboration. Uh, shared principles would be a common purpose. <laughs> a common purpose, yeah. Mike. Uh, it says the BBC's partners who attended the summit are the European Broadcasting Union, Facebook, 
Financial Times, First Draft, Google, Hindu, and the Wall Street Journal. Other partners are AFP, CBC, Radio Canada, Microsoft, Reuters, and the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And we're also consulting Twitter on areas of potential collaboration. So where's the separation of powers in that lot with a, a British public sector broadcaster? Well, absolutely no separation of powers, but of course it gets worse. The summit agreed to work collectively where appropriate to agree collaborative actions on various initiatives. The group will publish details of its commitments on these areas at a later date following consultation. Initiatives include an early warning system, creating a system so organizations can alert each other rapidly when they discover disinformation which threatens human life or disrupts democracy uh, during elections. The emphasis will be on moving quickly and collectively to undermine disinformation before it can take hold. Do you get a, a warm, cuddly feeling there, Mike, yes. that these people have our best interests at heart? And then number two is media education, a joint online media education campaign to support and promote media education messages. So this is get the propaganda into the classrooms, get it into the heads of the children as fast as possible. And uh, let's go on because we've got number three, voter information, cooperation on civic information around elections. So there's a common way to explain how and where to vote. So they're going to be telling you how to vote effectively, and that is going to be a common line across uh, both um, media companies and, of course, the uh, internet uh, media, social media providers. So and last one there, shared learning, uh, particularly around high profile, sorry, particularly around high profile elections to vote, particularly around high profile elections. Little bit of a slip in the text there, but also they're talking about shared learning. So this is an extension of uh, Theresa May's rapid response mechanism. Uh, and uh, what's what they've done there, correct me if or tell me if you think it's a different thing, but what they've done there is created a cartel. A cartel. So there is no there is no actual competition between any of these media outlets. They're collaborating. Uh, they're not in competition with each other and they're they're uh, They've created a cartel to push a common narrative. Common purpose to push out a common narrative to suit their own agenda. There's not, we're going to consult the public on what the public are concerned about, what the public uh, believe are the key issues. We're going to send out our teams amongst the public to report what the public who pay our wages want. We're going to collaborate, as you say. Now, remember, this is 2019, so we'll bring in the Director General of the time, Tony Hall, disinformation and so-called fake news is a threat to us all. At its worst, it can present a serious threat to democracy and even people's lives. Uh, this summit has shown a determination to take collective action to fight this problem, and we have agreed some crucial steps towards this. So there was uh, Tony Hall, Director General. He was there in post-April 2013 through to August 2020. Uh, well, the UK column, as we declared a couple of days ago, had decided to take on um, the new man in the post, Tim Davey. So let's just bring up from the, the UK column news 28th. When was that? Monday? Uh, beg your pardon, Wednesday, no, was it? Wednesday was... Time just going yes. too quickly, yes. Mike. <laughs> so here, here we had the email that we, we brought up on the news at the time. And essentially, we wrote to ask a question 
And the question was, in essence, why did the BBC, with all of its five billion pound funding, not report hundreds of thousands of people protesting against COVID lockdown in London on Saturday, the 24th of April? Now, there's no ifs or buts about it. The mainstream BBC news did not report. I think one of the minor BBC radio stations did make some reference to the people in central London. But overall, the BBC simply did not report the hundreds of thousands of people with concerns of very real concerns about lockdown and vaccines. So we just label that. What was Tim Davies' reply? Well, it was a deafening silence until the UK column followed up. And how did we follow up? Well, we sent him another email, which we'll read out. Dear Tim, I'm sorry that you've not had the courtesy to reply to my email asking you why the BBC did not report the Saturday 24th of April London protests. Hundreds of thousands of people marched in London because the government, and by default the BBC, is not telling the public the truth over COVID and COVID vaccine adverse effects. A recent BBC headline claimed that the key adverse effects were simply a sore arm and or a headache. Contrary to your grossly misleading headline, the official data is here. And what we did is we pointed him directly at the MHRA statistics. We quoted there the, uh, the total as per the 16th of April 2021, uh, which was adverse effects for AstraZeneca 548,485 with 627 deaths and Pfizer 143,034 with 334 deaths. So the data was put right in front of the Director General of the BBC, but to make it really easy for him, because uh, we're not sure of his actual uh, business uh, acumen, uh, we gave him the links through to the MHRA data. And we also pointed out that the MHRA reports that drug and vaccine adverse effects are significantly underreported uh, and um, this, of course, is being substantiated by NHS staff who are very concerned. And my last line to him was that he could now never say that he did not know the damage being done to the health of the UK public, the very people who pay your wages. Uh, and the wages are publicly reported by the Radio Times as, quote, a bulging pay packet of £664,000 a year. So that was the email. It went off to uh, the Director General of the BBC. And obviously, he was a little bit stung because he decided to reply. So let's bring him on screen. Uh, he said, Dear Brian, I am sorry, but I do receive hundreds of emails on numerous topics. And much as I would like to, I simply cannot reply to them all. However, the team will always give you a response. Also, I do try and read every email that comes into me. Thank you for the feedback. Best regards, Tim. Now, of course, the bizarre thing about this is that he says he can't reply to them all, but he did reply to my email. Uh, but what does he do? He completely avoids all of the information that we've given to him. Uh, so again, it's a stalling by omission, omission by the BBC. And the, the biggest laugh for this email was this line here. The team will always give you a response um, because, well, they simply haven't given us a, a 
a response. So more confirmation that the BBC is a highly duplicitous organisation and simply lies when you ask it difficult questions. So how, how does the BBC prefer to deal with you? Uh, let's uh, bring in this gentleman. Uh, this is a BBC uh, press officer that I spoke to before I emailed the Director General. Um, this man, I thought initially, was quite evasive. He didn't seem to be able to answer any of my questions about HMRA um, yellow card vaccine adverse effects. Uh, I asked if he could find out why the BBC had not responded about the hundreds of thousands of people in London. Um, he effectively said he would come back with an answer, but he didn't. And so after I received the response from the Director General, I phoned him again. I had a very frustrating conversation where this BBC press officer either couldn't or wouldn't tell me why the BBC did not report a demonstration of several hundred thousand people. And in the end, we've, we ended the phone call. But I decided to do some research on the gentleman and I phoned him quite quickly. And I was quite shocked to discover this is a trainee press officer. So he's done a year with the BBC, he's done eight months in post. And suddenly I understood why he was acting like he did, because clearly he'd been told to say nothing to me. He was embarrassed, he was very young. So some of his responses were not quite right. But now I understand, I don't want to name him because I think that's unfair. What I want to highlight for the um, public is uh, this, that essentially we've got a trainee press officer who's expected to stand up to the public asking questions, to journalists asking questions, and take the rap for what should be uh, a response from Tim Davey, the BBC Director General, on an estimated salary of 664000 I think this is one of the most disgusting interactions we've, we've had to date with the BBC, Mike. And I'd like to encourage each and every one of the several hundred thousand people who protested in London that um, uh, they decide to withhold their TV licences because I think 300,000 people, maybe more doing that, would wipe the smile off this man's face. So Tim Davey, I think we've got to say, is completely unfit for purpose. And really, our audience, you've got an open goal to take this man on because he does not want to discuss the government's own MHRA data about uh, vaccine side effects. And he certainly doesn't want to discuss the fact that there were several hundred thousand people in London. So if you want to take action, you've been given it on a plate, get in contact with the BBC, get in contact with your MPs and start to take the financial base away. It is, after all, public money. Now, contrary to the BBC, UK Column made sure that uh, its audience has been able to get the yellow card data. And uh, so uh, several people have said to us, we still can't find it on the government's own website. So I tweeted this out, uh, providing a link to the page and then uh, identifying the links that people need to go to to get the data. If you still have not seen this data personally, I'd encourage you to go and see it and uh, read it for yourselves. And at the same time, I'll highlight that when a lady 
simply gave the personal testimony of how her husband had suffered vaccine adverse effects, those effects of paralysis being diagnosed by NHS consultants. Uh, this information was simply stripped off the internet. Uh, so censorship with a vengeance, Mike. Uh, we'll be coming back onto that uh, a little bit later. But in the meantime, uh, let's uh, get into vaccine passports because, of course, uh, are they going to be used? Are they not going to be used? We all know they are going to be used, even if the government says they're not going to be used. Um, so uh, let's just have a quick look at this. The government has decided to, uh, to have a call for evidence, or rather this is the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, uh, has issued a call for evidence uh, for a new inquiry into COVID-19 certification. This is because the government has announced a review into uh, introducing a COVID, COVID vaccine certificate system or vaccine passports. Uh, and they say in their little press release, uh, vaccine certificates would provide proof of vaccination to confirm an individual is at lower risk of suffering severe COVID symptoms. However, it's not yet known what effect the vaccine has on transmission. Uh, it has been proposed that certification would become a prerequisite for accessing some services, public areas, and even employment. Uh, so here is the website. If you want to find it, have a look for uh, COVID-19 vaccine certification inquiry. Um, and uh, this is the call for evidence. They say the government have announced a review into introducing a COVID vaccine and status certificate system for vaccine or vaccine passports. And so they've launched this inquiry. They're asking for people to get involved, and I think people should. Uh, but on the European side, uh, uh, this is Velt here saying basically, well, they're talking about EU vaccine passports. I'm not going to talk about what the article says. I just thought the graphic was extremely interesting, Brian, because if we actually zoom in on the, uh, the image that they have created for this article, uh, you can see the vaccine passport on the phone on the right hand side there with Ursula von der Leyen. Um, so let's just highlight this section uh, because there's two uh, little sections listed there, COVID-19 and COVID-21. So is this a little bit of uh, predictive programming going on? Does Velt know something that's coming down the pipe? Uh, third not... wave, is it? Third wave. Well, but, but COVID-21, that's a whole new, new ballgame. So uh, who knows what that is? But also, uh, you'll notice that uh, there are three green ticks uh, internationally. So there's international cooperation on this. Uh, and later in the program, we're going to be talking about data sharing internationally. Um, so keep an ear out for that. She's not looking quite as good as she did, Mike. None of them is. Uh, it looks like she's under a bit of pressure and has, has been for some time. So yes. I wonder um, what that's about. Very sorry for her. But anyway, uh, that was sarcasm, by the way. But anyway, let, let's uh, just for anybody that wasn't sure, uh, let's move on to this. Uh, building a life sciences superpower. Britain is going to be a life sciences superpower, apparently. Uh, and uh, so how are we doing that? Well, uh, we're going to be transforming the UK uh, and we're going to create a commitment to, by the government to boost the UK's life sciences sector. We're going to invest uh, in all kinds of things, uh, multi, multiple millions of pounds. Patients are going to be able to benefit from better research, treatment, care, and improved clinical decision making. Um, and Matt Hancock is setting out plans, or he did set out plans at this event, which took place yesterday, uh, for the future of the UK's life sciences sector. Uh, this was held at the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry annual conference. Uh, and so they press release said that the life sciences sector made significant leaps in response to the COVID pandemic from finding innovative treatments for the virus, including dexamethasone, uh, and launching the first antivirals task force to rolling out one of the most successful vaccination programs in the world. 
to harness this momentum and ensure the sector's growth beyond the pandemic, the health secretary announced his plans to make the UK a life sciences superpower, building back better and embracing the innovations that transform the decades ahead. So let's have a look at what he said. Uh, this was, uh, he tweeted this out earlier, we're making further investments in some of Genomics England's most cutting edge projects, including the sequencing of newborns uh, in addressing the underrepresentation of ethnic minorities in, in genomic data sets and funding next generation approaches to cancer diagnosis. Now, as we reported uh, on Wednesday, well, you might get diagnosed with cancer, but there's no cancer treatment available because the backlog is so severe that people are leaving the NHS left, right and centre, particularly in cancer care. I, I just picked up on the sequencing of newborns and I, I just get a truly unpleasant feeling. Unpleasant yes. feeling. Yes. I'd also say to our audience, we talked um, on, on Wednesday about Twins UK. Um, I have been contacted by some of the twins who've been contacted by that programme and they wish to share some information and I think some concerns with us. So sequencing of newborns, um, what's going on here? Why, this is very dark stuff. Well, look, I, I think I think that uh, in, in a, a normal world where you had honest people running the country, you might say that um, investment in life sciences and turning the UK into a life sciences superpower, as they want to call it, might be a good thing. But with the crowd that we have in charge at the moment, with this health dictatorship that we have in charge at the moment, when we see the psychological operation that's been run against people in the last 12 months, what's actually going on here? This, this event was about profit and nothing else. This yeah. isn't about care or looking after people. It was about profit. And I'm going to put it in these terms, which might seem quite extreme to some people. Just think about it. Imagine if us as individuals are being farmed by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, we are being put in a state of fear, encouraged to be dependent upon them. Um, we become the cash cow for the pharmaceutical industry. That is effectively what I think has happened in the last 12 months. If we, if we in our own minds, if we put ourselves in this mindset of fear and, and running to them every time uh, we need yeah. support, then of course it's profit for them. And that seems to be, the, the, the language in this is all about business and profit. It's not about care. Yeah, and his shape or form. Uh, but don't worry, uh, because Matt has had his uh, jab. Uh, apparently he got it yesterday. In and out in eight minutes, he said, didn't hurt at all. Massive thanks to the JVT and the Science Museum team. Um, so there he is in his T-shirt uh, getting the injection. So, so he's done a Johnny Mercer light there. He couldn't yeah. get his gear off completely That's... to show his manly chest like Johnny Mercer did. Remember that one, ladies. Uh, that's the best that Matt could do was a slightly grubby T-shirt. Yes. Uh, now, uh, I'll just mention this in passing. Uh, I need to do a lot more reading to get to the bottom of it. But yesterday, again, Matt Hancock involved in this, uh, the United Nations event, High Level Interactive Dialogue on Antimicrobial Resistance. Uh, and this is talking about uh, not just antibiotic resistance, but also any uh, medication that's used for uh, antimicrobials, including va uh, vaccines and uh, antivirals. Um, and the concern that the overuse of these types of medications is strengthening the uh, the um, microbial attacks. And uh, so uh, we're going to do a little bit more on this, but I just wanted to let people know that that had uh, taken place yesterday. 
Um, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, you'd be very welcome if you were to join us there. And also please do share any material that you see on the various platforms. Okay, well, before we move on with uh, ads, just like to bring this article on screen. Yesterday, I was told about a mail article talking about masks and problems with masks in, in classrooms. I could not find that article. So if anybody listening or watching today knows what I'm talking about and provide me a, with a link, that would be excellent. I did find this article from the 21st of April, no masks in classrooms from next month. Gavin Williamson says secondary school pupils will not have to wear face coverings under rule changes expected on May the 17th. Now, the reason I've put this article up is for an introduction to the fact that after the news today, uh, we've got a really excellent interview with a mother of two children who's talking about her experiences of asking questions about the dangers of the COVID-19 lockdown policy and masks and social distancing. Uh, to children in schools and how she has clearly experienced head teachers who are just in fear of the rules and regulations being enforced on them. So that's going to premiere at 2.30 uh, today, so after the news. And really, I'm going to encourage to watch that, as it were, back to back with a later premiere of this one, which is a psychotherapist uh, warning of the mental health risks of COVID-19 masks and lockdown on the minds of children especially those from troubled families. And so that one will premiere at 8 p.m. tonight. But these two um, interviews just go hand in glove. They are utterly incredible. The ladies do not know each other. They've never met. But listen to what a mother says, talking from gut instinct to what a professional talks from her professional experience of dealing with children. And both these ladies desperately concern us what's happening to the minds of children. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, you can watch this on the UK Column website. Um, it's on the front page at the moment, ready for the premiere to begin at 2.30 this afternoon for the first one, 8 o'clock for the second one, and also on Brian's YouTube channel. Y yes, and I I'll just say that the uh, psychotherapist, her identity is protected, so the voice has changed. This does cause some problems, I know, but please listen very carefully to what the lady talks about. I will also pop this up, uh, which is a lovely email that came in. Thank you for bringing truth and clarity to us in the face of what's clearly tyranny. So that being brought to the door of being brought to the door of everyone on the back of so-called medical emergency. Since discovering UK column at the same time as keeping an eye on the mainstream media, it became massively clear where the truth lies. I could not stand the lies being peddled every day and have not watched TV for a long time now. I've joined the UK column for life. Well done. Thank you. Many people I know have cancelled their BBC license fee. That money is better served as a subscription to you. The silence from the BBC last Saturday about the biggest demonstration ever is probably the best thing they could have done to wake people up. I'm sure when the time comes, all these people will be held accountable. Well, Philip, thank you very much for that. Uh, lovely email into us. And yes, let's get on the case of the BBC. Now, other people are waking up to censorship and lies. Uh, Spectator here, I just found this a wonderful graphic. Yeah. Whoever conjured up that Dickie Bird did such a good job. But the headline is COVID has emboldened our modern censors. 
And uh, they say some really important things. Uh, this week, representatives from Facebook and Twitter were brought before Parliament to discuss their firm's censorship of discussions around COVID. Two particularly pertinent cases were raised. There are many more. There was a statement by Martin Kuldorf, a professor at the Harvard Medical School and one of the key authors of the anti-lockdown Great Barrington Declaration. His tweet last month suggesting that not everyone needed to be vaccinated, particularly those who had previously been infected, was labelled misleading by Twitter. Tweeters were rendered unable to interact with it and were instruct, instructed that health officials recommend a vaccine for most people. Um, it goes on to say, in November, Facebook labelled a spectator article on the efficacy of masks penned by Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson of Oxford University's Centre for Ev Evidence-Based Medicine as false information. That's pretty outrageous, yes. Mike. And the spectator now beginning to get a sniff of what's really coming in with this censorship. This is a bit more of the article. Encourage people to go and have a look at it. Um, but um, they ask questions such as on what basis could Facebook or Twitter simply declare their arguments are null and void? Um, the answers provided to parliamentarians were chilling. Um, Katie Minshall, head of UK public policy at Twitter, essentially said anything that contradicts official guidance from public health authority is deemed misleading by the platform. What a statement that is from an organisation that doesn't post the official information on adverse effects. And I thought I'd throw this one in mainly, Mike, for your benefit, because it's the BBC apparently talking about disinformation. And the title is The Disinformation Dragon. They're very worried about what the Chinese are up to. But unfortunately, the link to the content didn't work on that one. Oh, so. dear. That's so that was a bit of a shame. Maybe that was a Chinese <laughs> hack or something. Uh, probably a, a Chinese counter hack on the uh, BBC um, for putting out disinformation about misinformation and trying to call it truth. Yes. Well, uh, look, let's move on to the, some more on censorship. Uh, everybody would be glad to know that the G7 has had a meeting on this issue. Uh, the G7 Digital and Tech Priorities uh, was taking place yesterday. Uh, leaders from the UK, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United States and the European Union signed a declaration containing a series of shared principles on how to tackle the global challenge of online safety, including, the online, including that online firms should have systems and processes in place to reduce illegal and harmful activity and prioritise the protection of children, of course. They would. Anyway, uh, but the key thing there that I wanted to take out of that was to reduce illegal and harmful activity. So they are putting illegal and harmful on the same basis, on the same level. And I think that's a really dangerous thing. So who was there? Well, it's being led, of course, by the United Kingdom, because we have been driving this censorship agenda from the beginning. Um, and so this uh, joint ministerial declaration was signed uh, by Oliver Dowden, who's the digital secretary, of course. Um, and uh, this is going to apparently, quote, fire the starting gun on this year's G7 summit, which, of course, is taking place in Cornwall, just down the road from us. Um, and uh, that should be pretty entertaining. Let's see what Oliver Dowden had to say. Uh, he said, as a coalition of the world's leading democracies and technological powers, we want to forge a compelling vision of how tech should support and enhance open and democratic societies in the digital age. So we're going to have open and democratic societies by closing free speech, shutting down free speech and shutting down uh, 
comment? They can't run GP surgeries. They can't give basic medical care to the population. They can't fix the potholes in the roads. Um, but we've got this utopia in their heads around um, a well, technological age. These are incredibly dangerous people. Yes, for sure. But they've got to stop uh, anybody criticizing that. So uh, let's have a look and see what the uh, what the uh, statement said. Our collective recovery from COVID-19 must be rooted in a desire to build back better. Haven't we heard that already today? Uh, more productive and resistant global resilient. economy, sorry, resilient global economy with digital technology at its heart. Uh, we have therefore decided to place the needs of open democratic societies at the center of the technology debate and work together towards trusted values-driven digital ecosystem. Again, you were talking about trust earlier. Here we've got the trust word coming back. And the whole point about trust, uh, we need, really need to drive this home. The whole point about trust is if you have a trusted source, you can switch your brain off because you know that whatever that trusted source says is what you believe. You don't have to think, you don't have to look up any of the source information, you don't have to confirm that what the trusted source says is true. You only have to read it and suck it into your mind. Uh, they go on, the ability to move data across borders is essential for in, in economic growth and innovation. COVID-19 has demonstrated the need for data free flow with trust and its role uh, in the global recovery. So we are going to have this idea of free flow of data across borders. What does this mean? Let's have a look at the detail of this. Uh, building on the 2019 G G20 Osaka Leaders Declaration and the 2019 G20 Ministerial Statement on Trade and Digital Economy and the 2020 G20 Leaders Riyadh Declaration, the G7 Digital and Tech Ministers have identified four areas of cooperation to facilitate data free flow with trust and drive benefits for our people, our businesses, and our economies. Now, you'll notice they say our people, and uh, you may wonder who their people are, but anyway, uh, they say uh, we will do this while continuing to address challenges related to privacy, data protection, intellectual property rights, and security. So that's all right then. Uh, we will set out a roadmap to deliver tangible progress on this agenda. So this is about data sharing across borders. It's linked, it's gonna be linked to COVID passports. COVID passports are going to morph into, they're already being called green passports in the EU and in Israel. Um, and so this is about global moves towards uh, managing carbon credits. It's going to be social credit related to your use of car, uh, your, your emissions and so on. This is where we're heading. That's what this uh, COVID crisis is driving us towards. Uh, it goes on to say, we note that despite some positive steps and technological improvement, harmful content and activity remains widespread online. This undermines our democratic values, risks the physical safety and well-being of children, reduces online participation, and diminishes trust in the online environment. Uh, and whose trust is what I'm asking, but anyway, trust again, we've got to keep our focus on trust. But this is just straight out of the online harms white paper that we've talked about many times uh, on this program, because the whole censorship agenda is being driven under the veneer of child protection. So let's look at a little bit of the detail of this now. Uh, they're saying the COVID-19 pandemic has driven a steep increase in the use of the internet and different service, services provided online, such as social media, and has clearly demonstrated the importance of improving internet safety. Online content that is illegal and content that is harmful can have a major impact on people, especially women and children, and on our societies. 
And so they want to shut all that uh, down. They do not want any freedom of speech on the internet, but this is being now driven at a G7 level internationally. This began with the British government, it began with Theresa May and Amber Rudd, bringing these uh, companies into 10 Downing Street, telling them what they wanted. And uh, the internet companies doffed their caps and said, no problem, ma'am. And away they went. And this has continued now uh, at every level uh, up to G7. And we just add to that, at the same time as this is happening, what are they telling us very clearly? They're terrified of exposure. They're doing what they're doing hidden in plain sight. Uh, what really frightens these people is when people are lifting the stones, showing what they're doing, showing what they're building, uh, the pieces that they're putting together and warning other individuals about it. So every time you see what the plan is, share it with other people because that exposure does tremendous damage. Mm. Well, on that note, we want to say that one of the uh, papers that's come out recently that seems to be having a big um, impact is the Light Truth paper. And uh, I got an email, uh, I think this came in this morning, might have been last night, uh, but I paid attention to it because it was from a gentleman called Chris. Uh, it just said the Light Truth paper. And then there was a little bit of text. It says Tory MP slams the light truth paper in finesse. And there was a, a then quite a comprehensive um, link through Facebook. Uh, so uh, I'll just put the headline at the bottom so that people are sure they know what it, this is about. Now, the MP is named as Simon, but his real name is Simon Fell. Uh, but I clicked on the link and uh, oh dear, well, my question is, is this, is Facebook artificial intelligence censoring its own censorship? Uh, because when you click the link, um, it was inviting you to leave, really. And I took this, I might have got this completely wrong, Mike, so you can correct me live. But I just thought, well, I think what's going on here is that somebody is warning me that the link I'm about to go to could be an inappropriate link. Well, and be. the only thing I could get in my head that would be inappropriate as far as Facebook was concerned is that there was mention of the light newspaper. But the irony was that the article is very critical of the light newspaper. So the artificial intelligence beginning to disappear up its own bottom in this case, I think, if I can put it in those diplomatic terms. So let's have a look at the article here. Um, Furness MP Simon Fell, Blast anti-lockdown newspaper seen in Olverston. So this is Barrow in Finesse type area. Uh, this is the fine Tory uh, party representative. He said last time he looked, there was no shortage of toilet roll anymore and people had stopped stockpiling. Consequently, I can't imagine the demand for the paper will be high. Well, and right in that comment, we see the, the crux of the problem, don't we? Oh, go ahead. Well, a complete disconnect from the, his constituency. Yes. Um, very arrogant man. I think you can see that in the uh, picture. Uh, he went on, he said this, the simple fact is, the simple, it's a simple fact, Good. is that the vaccine rollout has led to a rapid and sustained drop in both the number of cases and the deaths in the UK. I think from the beginning of the programme, we showed that that statement is untrue. Yes, that's why he's arrogant and looks like he does, Mike. Uh, the vaccine is saving lives on a daily basis, and I would urge anyone who gets the call to book in for their jab as soon as possible. Not doing so is a risk, not just to them, but to the community as a whole. 
So that's what the man said. Pretty unpleasant uh, narrative from Simon Fell, because of course he doesn't give any proper data or evidence to support these uh, uh, accusations that he makes. So if we just focus the thing on screen, we've got this article where he says the vaccine is saving lives. MHRA data, which we've shown many times, it's being updated. Uh, deaths are now over a thousand from vaccines and adverse reactions are climbing well up towards the 700,000 plus. But Simon Fell doesn't know anything about this. And uh, how do we know? Well, we made a phone call this morning. We called his parliamentary office. And we asked if he was informing his constituents of the MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reactions data. His staff were completely unaware of that data and they invited us to contact him by email, which we are going to do. But this is the nub of it. The MPs are completely ignorant because they simply follow the internal uh, political party briefings or the House of Common Library briefings, pure propaganda. Uh, I suspect that either we will get no reply from Simon Fell or he will confirm that he has no idea what we are talking about when we talk about a thousand people dying, hundreds of thousands effectively injured as a result of the vaccine adverse reactions. Um, no, well, I think he'll come back saying there's no there's no evidence to uh, show a connection. Okay, well we'll see. We'll, yes, I think we'll run a small lottery on that yeah, okay. and see how we get on. Uh, right now, uh, here is another Simon, uh, Sir Simon Stevens. Now, of course, he is uh, uh, chief executive of the National Health Service uh, in England. And uh, well, he's being rewarded now for the deaths as a result of the reorientation of the uh, National Health Service in England, uh, because he is leaving his job on the 31st of July this year and is being kicked into the House of Lords. Um, so, uh, uh, of course, he has overseen this, uh, what, is being what is described by some as a major shift in how NHS care is delivered. Uh, yes, it certainly is a major shift because NH care, NHS care, of course, is no longer delivered to most people. Uh, which is why they're dying in their homes. Um, but uh, he's not the only one uh, getting uh, the, the treatment here because here's another one. Uh, Sir Robbie Gibb. Now, uh, Robbie Gibb, according to his current employer, uh, is a seasoned political advisor, broadcast journalist, and communications professional with an insider's knowledge of the British political landscape and an expert understanding of the Brexit process. That should make you feel good. So what job do you think he's getting then? Well, I've had a sneak preview, Mike, so it's a bit unfair to ask me. Let's uh, well, pop it up. Yes, he is becoming a director of the BBC. Yes, indeed he is. Uh, now, who is he? Well, of course, uh, he had a long career, as we said, as a broadcast journalist in BBC News. He was head of BBC Westminster and editor of, the live, of live political programmes, uh, as well as deputy editor of Newsnight. He left the BBC in 2017 to become director of communications at Number 10 Dining Street. And he stepped down from that uh, in 2019. As you can see on screen there, he was, they say that he is one of, he was one of Prime Minister Theresa May's closest political advisors. Um, so uh, he also previously worked as an editorial advisor to GB News until October 2020. He now works as senior communications advisor to, Ke to Kext CNC, which is the website you see on screen at the moment. Uh, and these people are uh, commercial communications uh, organization. They are uh, very much into narratives and, and, and so on. 
uh, and he's also a director of the Jewish Chronicle newspaper. He will get paid for this role, £33,000 per year, because remember, it's a, it's a directorship, but he doesn't have to work for it. He just has to attend a few meetings. Uh, and, uh, and he will also get paid £5,000 on top of that for chairing one of the permanent committees of the board. Uh, but we don't have to worry because this appointment has been made uh, in accordance with the Cabinet Office's Governance Code on Public Appointments. So oh, that good. should make us all feel perfectly fine. So it will be independent and trustworthy and above board. But there's no conflict of interest, you understand, <laughs> none at all. No. Well, we're usually uh, sharing emails that have come into the UK column. Today, we decided to share part of an internal UK column email. Let's pop it up on screen. Uh, it was from our very own Alexander Thompson. It quickly had a red flag attached to it, which means pay attention. Uh, and uh, Alex said, royalty has been gutted and its hide worn as a skin suit to demand respect for villainy. Uh, that headline rather caught my attention and I followed it through. Um, and what had Alex seen? Well, he'd seen this Daily Mail. The Queen honours Britain's biggest sex toy brand, Love Honey, with an award for enterprise after a 365% growth in six years as Chief praises the monarch for being a, a wonderful supporter. Well, this, of course, is the nation now coming into the gutter. Uh, there's no question that what's going on here. We're looking at the final attack, the final demise of the monarchy, um, along with the other national institutions of the police, the NHS. Everything in the country is being attacked. That's clearly part of a coordinated plan from central government and the deeper state, uh, very easy to see, but uh, it's really coming for the monarchy. Now, why did I pick up on this particularly? Well, some time ago, uh, the UK, uh, UK column received an email, which uh, was quite hard. This was the email um, from Kat. We'll just say a person called Kat. My husband and I watch on YouTube. Your broadcast starts at 1 p.m. On Friday, it had already been announced the Duke of Edinburgh had died. You did not pay any respect and not even dark clothing, a black tie, certainly not be watching again. Uh, well, this was a pretty uh, crunchy email coming in. I decided to respond to it and I thought today I'd share my response in light of the headline we've just seen about the Queen and quote, love honey. Uh, so here we are. Thank you for your email. There are a number of points to be made in replying. With regard respect, I served in the Majesty's Armed Forces for 21 years with total respect for the royal family. I've met the Queen personally and other members of the royal family and had very respectful and interesting conversations with them, particularly the Queen. Despite the above, over the years, I came to see that neither the Queen nor the Duke of Edinburgh placed the people of this nation at the forefront of their thoughts, be it for the protection of the Christian faith, our histories, laws, culture and customs, or for the poor, homeless and needy. I have watched as the royal family have continued to live off the generosity of the public purse, while Prince Charles, Prince Andrew and Prince Harry, as just three examples, have made a mockery of their royal status and duties. Personally, as a Christian, I do not believe in black ties and dark clothing for funerals, as it simply indulges the dark spiritual forces that we should be fighting against. Whilst you have written about the lack of respect on occasion of the death of Prince Philip, I suspect you've never written to us to lament the lack of respect for all those who have died as a result of the created wars into which Her Majesty's armed forces 
was submerged with injuries and deaths, nor more recently for those who died with vaccine damage. Lastly, and more simply, we often do not follow the bellicose lead of the BBC, mass media and press in the must-report topics, and we leave the subjects for measured reflection a little later. Mike and Patrick were already committed for the news on Friday, and I was at home and working from 7 until 22.30 to report on vaccine adverse effects and deaths. It's a pity that you will not be watching again as we cover a great many subjects and you will miss all this because the Duke of Edinburgh did not get a mention on the exact day he died. I felt it was appropriate to put that up because I think we can now see that the nation has been really badly let down uh, by the royal family and uh, we need to understand what is happening here. The whole fabric of the country is being attacked. If we allow this attack to continue, the nation will be reduced to ruin. And this is where the exposure comes in. But you've got an amusing little article for us, well, Mike, to look, lift, this, lift the tone this, a this bit. Is, this is just uh, a little bit of interest here because uh, the, uh, our journalist that was at the, uh, the, the march at the weekend uh, sent this over to me yesterday. And thank you very much for it. Um, it's uh, from Flight Radar 24. I believe this was the 12th of April uh, this year. Uh, and it's a flight that took off from uh, an RAF base near Kings Lynn. Uh, and it's headed south. And so where did it go? Well, it came to Plymouth, Brian. Um, and uh, well, it did some strange stuff around Plymouth. So let's zoom in on Plymouth then and have a look. And uh, this is what this particular aircraft did uh, while it was over Plymouth. Um, and uh, then, uh, as uh, anybody sensible would do, it got out of Plymouth as quickly as it possibly could. 515. Well, that's a little bit unkind. Anybody watching from Plymouth, a little bit of black humour. Yes. Uh, yes. And uh, so 515 knots. So it clearly wasn't a Boeing 747, uh, Brian. Uh, and uh, it, so what was it? Well, it was an F-35 uh, Lightning. So I was wondering, uh, do you think it was here to uh, suss out the UK column office with a view to a future bombing run? <laughs> Uh, possibly. I think it, it probably came down to do some tracking. So the warships, um, possibly there was a warship in the harbour, uh, was, do, was doing some radar tracking runs. So, but so this is a, a stealth fighter, of course. Stealth fighter. So maybe they were seeing how stealthy the stealth fighter was. Uh -huh. Right. Um, but uh, I, that's what I think was going on. So it was probably a training exercise. But yes. I can't be sure, of course, because it's so stealthy. Well, indeed, and of course, on Flight, Flight Radar 24, they don't have any information about the actual aircraft uh, other than to say it was a, an F-35 Lightning. So we do actually have one in the country, at least one. Uh, and uh, uh, The others are all at sea, the other five. Yes. <laughs> yeah. OK, now, look, uh, on a slightly uh, tongue in cheek, but more serious note, I just wanted to highlight this article here from the Daily Mail today. Uh, we are airborne gigantic six engine strato launch aircraft with a wingspan the size of a football field completed second test flight. Um, and so let's just, before we read the rest of the headline, let's just put the aircraft uh, on screen so you understand what it is. This is not an SR-71 or some future generation because the headline then went on to say, reaching five times the speed of sound. And I just had to say, Brian, that if this is the standard of journalism uh, in this country- Well, it moment, is, Mike, yes, unfortunately. Then the, the, the mainstream press is, it's, it, there's no hope for it. There's, there is no it's hope the for the old it media. We should get into the habit. It's not the mainstream press and media. It's the old media. Yes. It's old. It's finished. And that's quite clear. 
Um, well, look, that's it for today. Um, we're going to play out the program with a little bit of video because there's uh, a, a, an event taking place in Edinburgh at Holyrood uh, over the weekend, and we've got a little bit of promotional video for that, unless you've got something else. Well, I just have one slide oh, yes. that I, I thought would be quite fun to bring up on screen. This was sent through to me. Uh, we've got a picture of some holes in the ground, and the uh, label is, these posts have been removed in case they cause offence. And I really had to add to that. There are no boundaries to censorship. Yeah, but, uh, that's brilliant. Uh, that's where we're getting. So thank you very much to the person who sent that one in. It's always lovely to have something which is humorous. Um, just before we go to that video, we had a very nice note delivered to us while we were preparing the news today. Uh, if I just read a little bit of it, it says, thank you so much for all your hard work. I knew something was wrong in March last year, but I only woke up in July. I discovered the UK column in August and your informed content has helped me to make sense of what is going on and how we've been heading towards this for many years now. I work in the mainstream media, not for much longer as my position is increasingly untenable and I am ashamed of the coverage. So we're gonna to say to that person, thank you very much for the letter and the support and also the donation that you included. Um, okay, so uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Monday. Uh, we'll play out with this little promotional video for the event uh, in Holyrood over the weekend. And I uh, hope as many people as possible will go to that. Indeed. Thanks for joining us. I'm a scientist, but I'm also a son, husband, father, and I'm a grandfather. And I'm here because I want to do something to create uh, a world, a Scotland, my children and my grandchildren can live in in the future. Somewhere that's worth living in. government has presented to us. We must say no to masks, no to social distancing, no to invasive medical procedures, no to health passports, no to mass surveillance. Don't take her away. Don't take her away. Unfortunately, and I am genuinely sorry. You cannot tell me any lord of We simply cannot risk more of this new stream entering the country. 99.9% of all people here and all meetings across the planet will never be affected by the virus called COVID-19. We now intend to change the law. So I encourage everybody to think for themselves. Never, ever let anybody behind because that's the way fascists appears. The elderly that are on their own in care homes locked in more or less in individual rooms. If humanity is to endure this trial and survive, we have to keep empathy going. We have to care about the People have fought and died for our freedoms, our liberty, and we should guard them like our most precious jewels. People who 
worked good salaries and pensions and have been well educated and call themselves doctors and experts either know that this is nothing to be fearful of or if they don't know, they should know. And you're here to stand up against oppression. And when the history books are, uh, are written, you can say, I was there. to be free.